Welcome to Ominous Ones. I'm Connor. I'm Tara. We are a true crime murder mystery podcast about all things spooky. We'll be discussing the American serial killer Ed Kemper on our first episode with the Ominous Ones. Ed Kemper was born December 18, 1948. He is an American serial killer who killed 10 people, including his grandparents and mother. He enjoyed decapitating his victims and dismembering them before engaging in sexual activities with their corpses. He would dispose of all of their body parts in different areas in the mountains, as well as other locations. He even buried one of his victim's heads in his mother's backyard, face up, because his mother, quote, always liked to be looked up to, unquote. Why do you think he had sex with the corpses post-mortem? I've read that he did that because he did not know how to interact with girls at all. So I think that it just made it easier for him. That's so strange. Like, oh, I can't interact with a woman, so I'll kill her and then have sex with her. Because I know I'll never get it another way. Definitely strange. Well, you know, he had a troubled childhood from the beginning anyways. He imagined and had dreamt about killing his mother since he was eight. His parents divorced when he was nine, and he ended up moving in with his alcoholic, abusive mother and two sisters to Montana, which he hated the cold winters. She was so critical of him, and he blamed her for all of his problems. When he was 10, she forced him to move into the basement out of fear of him harming his sisters. He would cut off the heads and hands of his sister's dolls, and then he even coerced his sisters into playing a game that he called the gas chamber, which included them blindfolding him and leading him to a chair where he would dramatically suffer until he quote-unquote died. His first two kills were the family's cats, unfortunately. The first one he buried alive when he was 10, and the second he slaughtered with a knife when he was 13. His mother then sent him to live with his father for a short time, but he ended up going back with her, and then she decided that she would just send him with his paternal grandparents farm to their farm in North Fork, California. I've also read that when he murdered the first cat, he buried it alive, and then after he knew that it was dead, he dug it back up, cut the head off and put it on a spike. So that mixed with the dolls seems to be his first inkling that he was into decapitation. That's insane. So he was known as the co-ed killer or the co-ed butcher. His crimes were 10 murders total, six young women, his grandparents, his mother, and her friend, but not in that order. During the time of the co-ed murders and his mother and her friend in Santa Cruz, there were two other active serial killers, John Lindley Frazier and Herbert Mullins, which deemed Santa Cruz, quote, murder capital of the world, unquote, in the press. How do you think they got those statistics? Because that seems crazy. I'm not sure. Because maybe, like, it was just American press and not, like, worldwide press that was deeming it the murder capital of the world. But either way, that's still three active serial killers during that time. And in the 70s, that's like, that's pretty huge. And how many other victims did those other two murderers have? That makes sense that it was the American press because I know other countries will do anything they can to not have it get out that they have serial killers or murders. Russia is a big one on not releasing anything about it. I did not know that. When he was 15, Ed had finally given in to his rage on August 27th in 1964 when he shot Maud M. Huey Kemper, his 66-year-old grandmother, twice and then stabbed her post-mortem when she was in the kitchen, 
quote, to see what it would feel like to kill, unquote, after an argument that they had had. He then waited for Edmund Emil Kemper, his 72-year-old grandfather, to return home and shot him in the head next to his car because he didn't want his grandfather to come in and find that his wife had been murdered. And then he hid the body and called his mommy. Why do you think it is that he called his mom, of all people? Because whenever you see anything or read anything about him, this was about his mom and how she put him down and everything. So I find it so strange that she's the one that he called out of everybody. I know in several of the interviews, too, he also said that he loved his mom, but he also would say that he hated her. So I'm not sure. Like, I mean, everybody loves their mom regardless of this stuff that they get put through. Because that's your mom, you're always going to love her. And you only get one. But I'm not sure why he would call his mom. She convinced him to call the police, though, and he ended up turning himself in. And he then went to the California Youth Authority. He was, like, they took over custody of him. And they tested him for numerous things. And they found out that he had a super high IQ. And then he was diagnosed with paranoid paranoid schizophrenia i've also read that while he was at the california youth authority there was some psychiatrist or some sort of doctor he was talking to who said bad things about his mom and he said that he hated that they were speaking down about her so i guess it is kind of a mixed bag of him loving and hating her also Well, after he went to the California Youth Authority, he was then transferred to the Atascadero, I don't know how to pronounce it, State Hospital. It's a maximum security facility for mentally ill convicts, and he ended up staying there for the remainder of his sentence for killing his grandparents. But when he was, upon his release, they urged him not to go move back in with his mother because of the abuse and everything else. Yeah, they told him, I believe, no contact. Don't even send her a Christmas present. Which is crazy. But back to the murders. Marianne Peace was 18 years old and Anita Luchessa was also 18 years old. They were killed May 7th, 1972. And they were Fresno State students picked up as hitchhikers. He then stabbed them to death. They were dismembered. Then he would take photos and dispose of them in a ravine. Only some parts of Marianne were found, and none of Anita's remains were found. Which, why do you think that his M.O. changed so much with disposing of them, how he would do it in the mountains, and then in the murder, and then he buried one of the heads in the backyard? I'm not sure. I wonder if he was just, like, scatterbrained, and so he would just, like, do stuff differently occasionally because he does have similar MOs where he would always cut their heads off in their hands, which he started with the dolls when he was young. And then he would just dispose of them in different areas. Maybe it just happened to be like wherever he picked them up at since they were all hitchhikers. I do. Maybe agree. it had something to do with that. Yeah, I do agree that that's definitely the case. And in one of the incidents, I'm not sure which victim it was. He even misplaced the car keys and ended up tripping over his gun and a bunch of stuff. So he did seem really scattered. That was scattered. those ones. That was the Marianne piece? Yeah, and the Anita Luchessa one. Those were the ones where he um, had them out. He had told them, I can't remember where he said that they were going to go. And then he had taken them out to the woods. And Marianne was the one that got out first. 
and he said that he had broken her nose when he came back to Anita and that she was dying and that she needed to go get her. That makes sense. Yeah, it was those ones. His next victim was Eiko Ku. She was only 15 years old, and he killed her on September 14th, 1972, after she had decided to hitchhike instead of waiting for the bus to go to her dance practice. I guess she's not going to make that same mistake twice. He suffocated her, and then he laid her on the ground next to his car and raped her body. And then he kept her in the trunk of his car to gaze at from time to time before he eventually took her home and decapitated and dissected her as with the previous two female victims. That's another way that his MO differs is where he decides to keep the bodies when he's done. Because later on, you'll see he keeps two victims after they're deceased somewhere. He kept her in the trunk of the car. It's just crazy how much his MO changes. But they say it's harder to catch a killer if their MO is changing like that. So even if it was an accident, I think it helped him get away with it for longer. Yeah, that's very true. I wonder also if he would have ever gotten caught had he not turned himself in like even with his grandparents his mom told him to turn himself in and he did yeah and looking at like the zodiac killer or even golden state killer he was caught but how long later yeah where i think even if he got caught i think he would have gone on for a long well, time Zodiac's killing. still out too yeah so that's weird yeah i'm not sure his next one was Cindy Shaw, and she was 19 years old. She was killed January 8th, 1973. She was forced in the trunk and shot in the head with his new gun. He had sexual intercourse with her corpse again before dissecting her and disposing of her like the previous victims. But this one, he buried the head in his mother's backyard, throwing some of the body parts in the ocean where only some were discovered. And that was the one that I mentioned at the beginning with the head in the backyard. Yeah, that's insane, too, because... Yeah, you're right. It goes from, like, a ravine to the ocean to the woods to, you know, all of these other different locations. So it's – I bet I wonder how many locations he would have had before he ran out. Or I wonder if there's more. That's also true. How also – never mind. We'll get into that later. So our next victim, Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu. Rosalind was 23 and Alice was 21. And they were killed on February 5th, 1973. He used a parking pass to the university that he had gotten from his mom. And then he goes in, he offers them a ride, and immediately shoots them in the head. Puts them in his car, and then drives past campus security with the bodies currently bleeding, injured, in the car, dead, waving. Like, okay, bye. They're like, all right, see you later. Come back next time. And then he again took their bodies home, dismembered and decapitated them, and disposed of their remains in various different locations with their bodies. And then in it took until March before some of them were discovered by hitchhikers, or not by hitchhikers, by hikers near Highway 1 in San Mateo County. I've also read that when he was picking up all of these hitchhikers from the university, they would talk about the murder that was going around getting girls and how hitchhiking was getting more dangerous. So he would even talk to his victims about his murders, but as a bystander. Yeah, he would pick them up and then be like, oh, yeah, I've heard about the murder. It's getting scary out there, all of that. And they still thought that he was just this innocent guy giving them a ride. I think it was especially because his mom worked there. So I'm sure there must have been some interaction where they knew that his mom had worked there. 
I know also that even before he had started killing, he was picking up hitchhikers, female hitchhikers, but he would release them. He would take them to their destination and then be on his way. And then he finally decided that he was going to start killing them. And I know that he worked for the Department of Transportation for, and it was only about for a year because within the first year he got hit by a car and injured his arm pretty severely. He got a $15,000 settlement from it and bought a new car. And that's when he decided that he was going to start killing people. And so he kept the tools in the trunk and he had like a knife, a gun and handcuffs that he kept in there to start his killings. Like he had definitely planned it out a little bit for sure. Yeah. And he said that, um, all of it escalated and he could see an increase how he would pick up hitchhikers and take them to their destination. And then he would pick them up and go a little bit further each time until he finally had the confidence to go further with all of it. So Clarnell Strandberg and Sarah Hallett were killed April 20th, 1973. His mother was Clarnell and he killed her by hitting her in the head with a hammer, then cutting her throat with a knife while she slept. After an unpleasant altercation, he then dismembered her body, put her vocal cords in the garbage disposal, and threw darts at her decapitated head before hiding her body parts and calling her friend Sarah over for a visit. And shortly after her arrival, he strangled her and hid her body in a closet before fleeing to Playbo, Colorado. I also have read that he put both of their bodies in a closet and went out for a drink and then came back home, wrote a note, and then that's when he fled to Pueblo. That's insane. So, he, why do you think he was throwing darts at his mom's decapitated head? I've also read that he had sexual intercourse with her head and would just stand there and scream at it for hours. And I think it's because she put him down so much and he felt like he never had a voice to yell back at her or do anything. So, now that he had an advantage on that, he just put her down in any way that he could. It's insane because all of his mommy issues he took out on innocent young women. Like, his youngest victim was 15 years old and then ended up killing his mom and her friend. Why did he kill a friend? Why did he call the friend over? Like, what was the point in that? That was because he was giving his mom an alibi why she was gone. So he left, the note that he left said something along the lines of went on vacation with Sarah. So then it looked like both of them had just gone on vacation, which is also strange why he didn't just say his mom had gone on vacation. But I do know that he like alibied them together. That's insane because once he got to Pueblo, Colorado on April 23rd, 1973, he ended up turning himself in, which I'm wondering since after he killed his grandparents, he called his mom and she told him to turn himself in. So I'm wondering if like her spirit or something like that was telling him or his subconscious or something in his mind was his mom's voice telling him that he needed to turn himself in because he ended up calling the Santa Cruz police. And at first they didn't even believe that their friend Big Ed could be a killer until all of his interrogations led them to all of the evidence that they would ever need to prove that he was in fact the infamous co-ed killer. That makes sense. And he also said that he turned himself in because he knew that once his mother was dead and he had gone this far that he was never going to stop. So he called him and was like, please come stop me. This isn't going to end. So once he was back in Santa Cruz from Colorado, the cops went and picked him up and he went to trial in October 1973 on eight counts of first degree murder and was found guilty and was convicted in early November 1973. 
When the judge asked his punishment should be, he requested the death penalty and said he should be tortured to death. Instead of the death penalty, which they couldn't do in California at that time, he was given eight concurring life sentences, and he is currently in the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, which I think it's insane that he is still alive. Yeah, absolutely. I can't. Um, I why did California not have the death penalty back then? Like it was in the early seventies, so that's strange to me. But it seems I mean, hit and miss California. in all the states. Yeah, I know Nevada. The state of Nevada is. Um, we were the last ones to stop doing public hangings. Wasn't it? That stopped in, like, the 70s or something. I'll have to research that, but it was, like, not that long ago. I was going to say. That it was still legal to do. Yeah, it was still legal to do public hangings in Nevada. It's still legal in Utah or one of the upper states to do death by firing squad. I'm pretty sure in Nevada you can still do death by firing squad also. I think it's at request or there has to be some certain religious reason or some reason for it. But, yeah, Yeah. it's still a thing. I'm pretty sure in the state of Nevada it also still is a thing. Is there anything else you want to touch on with him? Um, I do know that while he was in prison, he read, he, I don't know if he still does it, but he was reading books for the blind and he won a bunch of awards for being a volunteer and the, the facility he's at, they say he's just an upstanding prisoner. Like they've never seen better. Aw, that's so sweet. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess, but you know, what's insane to me is that these serial killers, they are like, I'm never going to stop. And then there's he like he said that he's like you guys have to come stop me if you don't send me away then I'm not gonna stop. But he's in prison with people. People in prison make shanks all the time and kill people in there. Why is he not still continuing killings in prison? Is it just because he only wanted to kill women, and he doesn't have access to female guards? Or I think his mom being dead was a big thing because she seemed to be his number one target. Because he went from California all the way to Colorado. Doesn't appear that he hurt anybody or killed anybody. So I think with her being gone, that helped. And then, yeah, I think the not having women around him is a big thing. Because he never seemed to have animosity towards guys. Yeah, because the only man that he killed was his grandfather. And the only reason he did it was out of sympathy. Because he didn't want him to go inside and see that his wife had been murdered. He was like, my grandpa's going to be devastated. Yeah, and, and so I was like, well, I guess i got to kill him too. I've read that his grandma, even though it was his father's mother, was very similar to his mom and would put down his grandpa and his dad and all of that. So I think that was just his view on women, be it his grandmother or his mom or a hitchhiker. And then with guys, he had sympathy. That makes a lot of sense also as to why his father would get into a relationship similar to that because his father saw that that was okay growing up, that his mom was doing those things. And so his father got into the same uh, similar relationship with his mother and then Ed Kemper just full circle. She was probably much worse, I'm sure, than the grandmother was, but... Yeah, they say guys marry their mom and girls marry their dad. Well, in this case, it seems like that is very factual. Agreed. You know that I think that we should do a second segment on the other two serial killers that were in the area during that time. 
especially Herbert William Mullins that I mentioned earlier, because they were they ended up in prison together and had some animosity back and forth. So I agree that would be a good next case. Absolutely. That would be awesome. Also, at some point, didn't they say that like his first IQ test ended up being incorrect and his IQ is actually higher than that? Yeah, when he was in the California Youth Authority situation, they took his IQ and it was 136, which was already really high. And then years later, when he was in prison for all of the murders, they upped that to 145. And they even asked him to give some of the other inmates the tests. Wow. That's insane. I like how now that he's, like, done, killed his mom on his way, he's like, I'm a great person now. I'm reformed. Really turned it around, but he should absolutely be kept in there forever. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I not There's not many interviews with his siblings or much is known about any of them, but his half-brother or his stepbrother that his dad had and his other relationship when he ended up going to his grandparents' farm, his half-brother or stepbrother has spoken out and said that his whole family fears him getting out and he might retaliate. And there's even some of them that still want to kill him or hunt him down for what he did to the grandparents and his mom. Wow. And, well, I mean, obviously the sisters knew his mom, but did his stepbrother know his mom? There's Or no- he's just upset still about, like, grandparents? I believe it's the grandparents. There's not much information out there from any of them. It was very vague what I read about the stepbrother. I could imagine because if, I mean, if I was related to a serial killer, I would absolutely talk about it all the time. Like, not because of any other reason, but because then you would get different aspects as opposed to, like, just the interviews or what he's telling people because you only tell people what you want them to know. I'm sure he has plenty of secrets that he's never told. Well, one thing his brother said is he believes he's only said about 30% of the truth and his stepbrother believes that there's more victims. And it's weird none of them talk for how big he was to do interviews and he was just all over the place and absolutely loved to talk about what he'd done and what he thought was wrong with him. So it's weird that there's nobody else in his family who wants to come out and talk about any of it. Well, they're probably still living in fear, like you said, that one day he's going to get out. For sure. That's insane. Anyways, well, thanks for listening. Tell all your friends and family to follow us on social media, Omnis Ones on Facebook and Instagram. Give us five-star ratings, of course, all the time on all of the podcast stations because we are on Spotify and SoundCloud. And we will soon be uploaded to Apple also. Have fun. Have a spooky weekend. Bye. Bye.